security of the believer. Romans 8 will be our, our text we'll work from. It was back in September of 2015, which doesn't seem that long ago, uh, that we were in the middle of a study of the book of Romans, if you'll remember, some of you. 16 weeks in Romans, uh, 16 sermons is what we uh, worked through for the foundations of our faith. And uh, they were just about the fundamental truths that we need to know. I set upon a course intentionally in understanding God's Word and to have a deeper understanding of Him. I have structured the sermon series over the last three or four years uh, to lead to these things that we are studying now. Uh, A good portion of 2015 was spent in the book of Romans. And I said even then when we were in verse, or chapter number 8, that I want to revisit this chapter, and this is what we're doing uh, now. There are so many portions of Romans I'd like to spend more time in. Uh, This is where, where I'd like to start. Last year, as you know, a good portion of our time was given to Galatians chapter 5. That was a study of the internal battlefield uh, within us, the conflict between the flesh and the spirit, and um, the basic need for us to walk by the spirit. If you need any of that repeated, I can start all over. Or you probably should be convinced of it by now. We're going to actually be continuing our study of the spirit in Romans chapter 8. That's what our course is on here in the last year and this year. They're both studying uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and why that's important to us as believers. You see, in Galatians 5, it showed us that uh, we have a great need to walk by the Spirit. If you're not convinced of that, uh, we weren't paying very good attention to the passage. This year... I want to show from Romans 8 the value of the Spirit's walk with us. There is great value in the Spirit's walk with us. At at, at a risk of mental overload here, I realize, I want to remind you, for some of you, uh, it's a reminder. Some of you, it's new information because you weren't with us back in 2015. The significant point of the book of Romans, each chapter has a main point and a main verse. I should quiz you on this, but I think I'll just remind you this morning of what those were, because they tend to help us understand the context of where we're going to be today. So, I'll just simply scan through this, and you can follow along. If you go back to Romans chapter number 1, I know you're in 8, so it's only a few verses or pages back. In Romans chapter 1, the fundamental truth taught in that chapter is that salvation is only accomplished by the power of God. In verse number 16, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans chapter 2. Work your way over to verse number 11. Fundamental truth. Salvation cannot be bargained for. 
It cannot be bargained for. In verse 11, there is no partiality with God. Chapter 3, verse 28. Chapter 3, verse number 28. Fundamental truth is that the depth of our sin makes it impossible to earn our salvation. And what we see here in verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You can't do it. In chapter number 4, verse number 5, Faith alone justifies the ungodly. Faith alone. But to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. It's only faith that God justifies by means of what Christ has done. It's faith alone. Chapter 5, verse number 15. Salvation is a gift of God. It says, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died... Much more did the grace of God and the gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. It is a gift. Romans 5, verse 15. Romans 6, verse number 8. Romans 6, verse number 8. We are united with Christ. We should not continue to sin. That was a fun study. But there it says in Romans 6, verse 8, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him. That's a place we've got to come to a conviction of. Have you died with Christ? Then how should you live? With Him. Now, chapter 7, verse number 6. We have the, we have the newness of the Spirit. We don't have to continue to sin. I say that very carefully. I hear you know, there's a, a tendency to raise a little flag right there and say, what? Listen, we don't have to continue to sin. You know what our problem is. We do. <laughs> but this is what it says in verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. You've been changed forever because of the Holy Spirit. And we found that in chapter 7. Chapter 8, we can live godly lives because God dwells in us. Verse number 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Chapter 9. God is the initiator of our salvation. It's verse number 16. Chapter 9, verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God initiates salvation. And chapter 10, we are responders to salvation. That's what we do. We respond. He initiates, we respond. Verse number 4 of chapter 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Chapter 11, verse number 36. God gets the glory. For from Him, and through Him, and to Him, 
are all things. To him be the glory forever. And it says amen on that too. And then we move from those chapters to 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, following a great big therefore, chapter 12 begins. We are, in chapter 12, a chapter on our personal devotion to God. We are to present our bodies as living, holy, acceptable sacrifices, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Chapter 13, we have a public devotion to God as well. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14. Chapter 13, verse number 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Chapter 14. We have a responsibility. It's our relationship with others who are devoted to God. That's from verse number 8. Chapter 14, verse 8. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And that's, we is important in that whole passage. Not just about me. Verse, or chapter 15. In verse number 7, we are to be accepting, accepting one another as Christ accepted us. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And the last one in verse chapter 16, verse 19, truth must be applied. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Would it be nice that a report of our obedience to God's word reached to other parts of this world? People hear of it and say, boy, we've heard about your obedience and it's challenged us, it's excited us, it's encouraged us to walk in the way of the Lord. That was our study of Romans. In all those chapters, it was a heavy section. 16 weeks. Now we're going to spend more than 16 weeks on chapter 8. Alright? Chapter number 8 is where we want to go. Verse number 16 was our main verse, and I'm going to bring it up again today. Romans 8, verse number 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Right, that's where we're going to start. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we start this morning singing praises to your name. Now we come before your book, and we sit at your feet and ask you to teach us. Walk us through this passage carefully, Lord, that we may grasp all the pieces, all the nuggets, all the gems that are in these things. May we reap a great harvest from this study. May it do some work in our hearts. May it give us great confidence in your love for us. May it truly change us. We look forward to what you're going to do with your word. For we know it is powerful, it's sharp, it's active, it always accomplishes what you set it out to do. 
And we are grateful recipients of it here this morning. Thank you for it. We pray that your glory might be seen in our midst as you work in our lives that we're quick to give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to start with a doctrinal point here, as you've already heard my topic. The topic is the security of the believer. There are those who oppose that doctrine. There are. I know that because I used to be one of them. There are some who are quite motivated in their opposition. They use some pretty pretty hostile words when they try to speak against it. Some speak out of ignorance, and that's just reality. They don't have any idea what they're talking about. They just... uh, They just speak what they've heard. And to be honest, that's where I was once in my life. For somebody to have said the security of the believer to me, I could sense fear well up within me. Same feeling you might have when you are in trouble. Uh, You get a bad grade on a report card. Or you see little flashing lights in your mirror. You know the feeling? Well, not that one, but you might know a few like that. That's the fear I recall when I would hear these words. Because the way I was taught as a young believer, from the age of 12 when I came to know Christ as my Savior, to the age of 19, I was told the doctrine of security was a bad doctrine. I was taught that. I was told it was to be avoided at all costs, like the flu. If somebody has it, keep far away from them. And that's what we were taught to do at the church I attended. Uh, Almost like we went in every week to get shots. To keep us from getting such a disease, apparently. When I was choosing to go to Bible college, after high school graduation... I was encouraged by the pastor of my church to go to the seminary he went to. And I was more inclined to attend Moody Bible Institute. Number one, it was cheap. (laughs) They had no tuition, so I think that's a pretty good price. So I thought, well, I'd like to attend Moody Bible Institute. Now, in, in case you're wondering, well, what difference would that really make? If you understand the concepts of what we call Calvinism, In theological circles, some people use the letters T-U-L-I-P, TULIP, to describe the main tenets of that uh, particular uh, theological understanding. Many consider Moody Bible Institute to be four and a half out of five points. We got kind of technical. Four and a half out of five points, uh, which means that they were very strong in their understanding of the security of the believer. Well, the church I grew up in was strictly Arminian. You know the difference between the two? You can see we're talking about the difference of night and day. A huge distinction between the two. So, I had to ask my pastor for a pastoral reference so that I could go to Moody Bible Institute, contrary to everything that he's been telling me for seven years. And I I remember how that was a frightful little interview. I knew it would be difficult, and it scared me. 
but I went and asked him to fill out this reference form for me. And I was told, and I could almost say the exact words, because I could still remember what the living room looked like I was sitting in, and the pastor sitting there, and all the rest I could remember it well. But he looked at me and he said, you know, the things they teach is contrary to what we teach in this church. He says, I want to warn you that if you believe one thing they say, you've got to believe it all. I heard those words. And you know what? I went to school very defensive. I was ready to fight for what I've been taught. And I went that, in that mode. I, I went there ready for a fight. I nearly flunked the Gospel of John. Could you imagine that? The Gospel of John, the easiest book perhaps in all of them to understand. Why? Because it was full of teaching on the security of the believer. Chapter after chapter after chapter brought it up, and every time it did, I just, I was horrified to see those words come through on the page. And if you want to check it, go ahead. It's there. Many, many times. Matter of fact, you know one of the principal verses of it. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. Is there any maybe in that phrase? I wanted a maybe, but it didn't say maybe. Well, I got through John. I thought, well, this is going to be okay now. And then they put me in Romans. I was in misery, folks. I will have to confess, I was in misery. I was fighting God. That's the reality of it. I was denying His Word. That's what it was. I was twisting verses in order to satisfy my, my faulty convictions. They were not really mine. They were my pastor's convictions. They, they were my church's convictions. And I was there to please them. When I come down to it, that's what I believed. But you know, his words were prophetic of sorts. When he said, if you start to believe one of them, you're going to have to believe them all. He doesn't know how right he was. Because as I started to work through the book of Romans, chapter 1 through 4 showed me how depraved I was. I couldn't believe what I was reading in those verses. I'd never been told I was that sinful. And yet the word of God struck my heart. This, this morning I was reading a, a sermon that Spurgeon had preached. And he made this one comment that stopped me right in the middle of the sermon. He described his heart as a morgue. And I said, ooh, I never thought of it that way before. But that's a picture of depravity. And the, the whole picture is that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. I could not accomplish salvation. I could not bargain for my salvation. I could not earn my salvation. I could not be justified in any other way but through Jesus Christ alone. That was it. Salvation is a gift from God. That changed my life to see those words. It was like fresh ink on the page as the teacher went through these passages. Romans 5 flattened my theology. 
just flattened it. And it warmed my heart. God loves me. It says in verse 8, even while I was being his enemy, or I was helpless, or I was yet a sinner, God loves me and demonstrated his own love toward me. That while I was yet sinner, Christ died for me. That changed me. That changed me. Now, I became a Christian when I was 12. But I did not know what I believed until I started to understand God's Word. What I came to understand was this. This is what He has done. He has done. All those years I was taught what I should do, and not what he has done. That would change your perspective. When I start to talk to you about the security of the believer, as we set this up, I, I, I realize, because I've been there before, some of you may get those feelings that I've used this morning already, and you're a little concerned about this whole thing. I want to be very clear in what I'm doing with you in the course of this study. It's the farthest thing from my mind to be cocky about my faith or to be superior in my theology. I'm talking about what God has done for you. That's our study. This is what God has done for you. I didn't invent this doctrine. Calvin did not invent this doctrine. God did it. It's his words. So it won't do you any good to fight with me or fight with Calvin on these points. If you've got something to say and something to oppose, talk to the God who has done this. I'll be frank with you. If you don't want to believe what God has said, 2017 sermons are going to be very miserable for you. (laughs) I know the feeling. You're going to be very uncomfortable with these words. So, that's my introduction. You ready now? That's just to prepare you for this passage that we're going to start with here. Uh, I want to convince you that there is a link between the Holy Spirit and your security. For some of you already know the great verses of Romans chapter 8. You especially might like the last couple of verses. What can separate you from the love of God? And it goes through a great list of things. And we find great comfort in those words. And really, that's where we kind of hang our security hat on the last couple of verses of the chapter. But this chapter is full of the work of the Holy Spirit. We're told earlier, as we studied already, that we're to walk by the Spirit. Now, you might think that's a difficult thing to do, even after our study. To say, walking by the Spirit is kind of hard, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is hard. I used the idea of a battlefield to show you the conflict, so you'd understand that the flesh and spirit are in conflict, and that's not a comfortable place to be. And that's reality. We found a command in that, didn't we? Walk by the Spirit. That was a command, wasn't it? Not an option but a command given for us to do something. And I gave you great emphasis in that department. But now, when we talk about this, we found that we cannot do anything spiritual without the Spirit. That's the reality. So, here's our challenge. How do we understand what we can do 
yet we can't do it unless the Holy Spirit does it, and we have to depend upon Him in order to do it. Does that sound like Dr. Seuss or something? That's the conflict that goes through our mind. We're told to do it, but we can't do it. But we can do it if He does it. It can be done. That's called dependence. But that's our first part that we've studied. That was last year. The second part that we study now is that the Spirit does something for us that works in this whole security issue because He grants to us peace. He gives to us confidence. He gives to us assurance as we learn to walk closer to Him. I wouldn't call them side effects of a spiritual walk. I just simply say it's a better understanding of what He has done for us. A better understanding of what He is doing, even right now, in your life as a believer. It's what He is doing. It says in Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now let's, let's start with this. Romans 8 is full of information on the Holy Spirit. Some people are a little surprised by that. But just take your finger and start walking down the verses. I'll point it out to you. Verse number 2, you see the Spirit. I do. You go down into verse number, let's see, 4. Look at the end of verse 4, according to the Spirit. Go into verse number 5, according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Verse number 6. The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Let's see. Go to verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And it says the Spirit of Christ a little bit later. In verse number 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised you from the dead dwells in you, uh, down to the bottom of verse 11. Through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now you keep going to verse 13. And it says... If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, I see them there. Verse 14, I see them again, led by the Spirit of God. In verse number, let's see, try verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies that with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, we can keep scanning through here. You're going to see his name again in verse 23. You can see him again in verse 26. He's part of verse 27. He's working in the rest of the verses that are going to follow from there. But my point is simple. He's dealing with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in your life. What he is doing all the way through this passage. And so it's very natural for him to say, the Spirit, in verse number 16. The Spirit himself. The Spirit himself. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God. Right? What's he doing? He testifies. Sum martirio. Sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? Testifies with. Martirio is a great little Greek word. We get our word martyr from that word. It's to testify. Now you say, well, how does that work exactly? Well, you know, the real understanding of a martyr, a martyr is not a victim. A martyr is a person of conviction who's willing to die for what they believe. That's a martyr. They're willing to die for what they believe. They're fully convicted of their beliefs. That's a martyr. They didn't die accidentally. All right? 
That's the word that the Greeks use for witness. It's the full conviction of something. Now, here's what's interesting. The Holy Spirit is using that verb. He is thoroughly convinced of something. Absolute, now, he's not in danger of dying for it, but the nature of the word, it's an intense conviction. He has an intense conviction, a, an intense testifying of something. It's about as strong as you could say it. The Holy Spirit's saying something in this verse, and he's intensely saying it. Well, let's see what else that has to do with that verb. Something else interesting. It's a present tense verb, which means simply this way. He is testifying right now. That's the idea. Not this, he once testified years ago, like past tense, or an idea of the future tense, well, someday he will testify, as if it's just a future idea. It's not that either. It's not a potential idea like, well, maybe he will testify, or something along that line, but it literally says, right now, that's present tense, isn't it? Right now, this is reality, right now, he is testifying. Right now, he is intensely convicted about something. Right now, he is still testifying. Paul wrote this almost 2,000 years ago, and the Holy Spirit is still doing it. Right now, he is still testifying to the same point because he will always testify to this point he will always do it it's an unending concept we, we call it the continuous aspect in grammar it's not changing it's not changing so would you call that a passionate type of uh, action I would what's he so passionate about What's he so intense about? What does he have to convince us of? What is he so convinced of? Well, he's testifying with our spirit, it says in verse 16. Testifying with our spirit. You know, our spirit is the part that responds to him. It's that person inside of you. But your spirit is testifying. His, he's testifying that you are what? Oh, you can see it. We are children of God. Take that very carefully. We are children of God. We are. Hear the words? It's not we were. We used to be. doesn't say that. It doesn't say we might be, or we could be, or we should be. No. You don't see we will be, or we hope to be. I don't know what other qualifiers you want to stuff in there, but you don't see them, do you? It says we are. We are children of God. That, that, that little verb there is the verb we use for existence. To be. We are. We're existing as children of God. Children of God? You find that a funny phrase? 
You're used to it now. You've been to church long enough. What does that mean? To be children of God. Well, you were born to a mother and a father, weren't you? I know nobody here could deny that. You were born to a mother and a father. You will always be the child of that mother and father. Now, the reality is that mom and dad might not be here anymore. Maybe you never knew them. My dad's father died when he was three weeks old. He did not know his father. Maybe you saw them. Maybe they're still with you. Maybe sometime along the way they separated from you and you haven't seen them. You were maybe brought up by somebody else. Maybe you have a different person you call father or a different person you call mother. But this biological fact you cannot change. You have a mother. You have a father. You are their child. Theologically, it's very much like that. To be saved, you must be born again. Have you ever heard that before? Of course you have. It's loaded in the scriptures, John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were not born of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of the man, but of God. If you were born of God, you are his child. It says that in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. It says in 1 John 5, 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. 1 Peter 1, 3. I love that verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First Peter 1.23 You have been born again, not of seed that is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring Word of God. He brought it about. Jesus said you must be born again. And when you are, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. It's a theological fact. We are children of God. That's what Romans 8, verse 16 says. We are children of God. Have you ever questioned that? Yes, you have. All of us have. We wrestle with that from time to time and say, I don't know, Lord. I've had my doubts. Who is testifying of it here in this verse? Who is intensely convicted that this is true? The Holy Spirit says it. The Holy Spirit is convinced and testifying intensely that you are a child of God. You hear it? I think that's incredible. He does this over and over and over and over again because of the nature of the verb. He is always testifying that you are a child of God. Note 
Look at verse 16. Very important here. What it does not say is, your pastor testifies that you are a child of God. That's not my place. Or I could look at you and say, uh, I don't know. But that's, I'm not here to testify whether you are or you're not, because I can't see something inside of you. He can. Matter of fact, I'm very glad my first pastor wasn't in charge of that department. It doesn't say your church testifies that you are a child of God. Does it say church in there? It does not say that. Matter of fact, it doesn't even say your theology testifies that you are a child of God. Now, it'd be nice if your pastor could, and your church would, and your theology does say that you are a child of God. It'd be nice that all those things are put together and they all say the same thing, and that's very convincing and encouraging, isn't it? But look at who is testifying. The Holy Spirit. And who is He? He is God. And so God Himself is saying, You are my child. You hear it? I think it's a powerful verse. Argue with that and you argue with him. You argue with him. Picture this now, if you will. He says, the Holy Spirit says, walk with me. Walk with me. Don't walk in sin. We learned that in Galatians. Don't follow the flesh. You say... I'll try. We always say it just like that, don't we? I'll try. Well, we do okay on Sundays. But what's wrong with a Monday? What's gone wrong that our try is, is more of a trial? Why is it so difficult for us? Why, why, are Monday, why do we struggle when we hear the Spirit says, just walk with me, and, and we don't. And then we feel defeated, don't we? We, we, we get discouraged, don't we? And, and we think, well, we've gone the wrong way. Yes, you did. And you start to think, well, God's mad at me now. The Holy Spirit, He's not going to talk to me for a month. You ever feel that way? You start to think that maybe uh, one of the Egyptian plagues is going to break out on your car. Or something like that. I used to be very superstitious. I'll tell you the truth. I was very superstitious about my devotions. I fear that if I did not have my devotions, before I got out of bed every single morning, God had this giant plastic bat he was going to hit me with. I had this fear that a worse day was going to come if I didn't start it with devotions. Now, do you think the Lord would rather have you come to him out of fear or because you love to spend mornings with him. I lived out of fear. I was taught to be fearful of God. That's what it was. I, those are excuses, perhaps. But, that was reality. And many times when you're not walking with the Spirit, I know how that feels. And you say, you know, he's got to be mad at me. He's, he's got to be upset with me. What do you think the Spirit is doing while he's walking beside you? And he's beside you, and he's in you, every single day, every single moment. What do you think he's saying? You are a child of God. 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 Isn't that what he testifies to? 
Many times we need to hear those words, don't we? Because we don't feel like a child of God at the moment. This is his testimony. His testimony. You are a child of God. Matter of fact, if you go through the whole chapter of Romans 8, this is what he's telling you. I set you free from the law of sin. Verse 2. I fulfill the requirements of the law. Verse number 4. I give you life. I give you peace. Verse number 6. I dwell in you. Verse number 9. I give you life. Verse number 11. I put to death the deeds of the flesh. Verse number 13. I lead you. Verse 14. I gave you the spirit of adoption. Verse 15. I give you the desire for eternal things. Verse 23. I talk to you about your hope. Verse 24 and 25. I pray for you and your weakness. Verse 26 and verse 27. I work things together in your life. Verse number 28. I was part of that whole thing that brought you to being chosen and predestinated and called and justified and glorified. In verse number 30. I'm conforming you to the image of Christ. Verse number 29. I am for you, he says in verse number 31. I defend you in verse 33 and 34. And I will keep you in verse 35, 36, 37, 38, and 39. Now, is he busy? Oh, yes, he is. He is always testifying that you are a child of God. That's his ministry. Now, it's this simple. Your security is not based on you. Understand that? It's not based on you. It's not based on me. It's a ministry of the Holy Spirit in you. That's what he does. Now, if it takes me all year to convince you of that, I'm going to try. But that's his ministry. I hope it's clear enough as I explain these words to you, that you come to understand this. Because I believe it's essential that we know God. And that we know what He's doing in our lives right now. How many things in this world are you unsure of? Good question on January the 1st, isn't it? Now, I can't help you with politics. And I can't help you with economics. That's not my profession, but I could help you understand that we are called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to know that grace to the fullest bloom. I want you to know Christ in His fullest glory. I want you to know what God has done for you. I want you to know these things. I want you to know and rest in the fact that you are His child through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to rest in that when you understand how secure that is. Now, don't take my word for it. Listen to the Spirit who's testifying. And right now, He's testifying. And guess what He's saying? You are a child of God. That's where we're going to start. All right? That's the introduction to the whole thing. 
So that's where we're going to start. Let me give you some homework. <laughs> I love this part. Can you spend at least one day this week and read through Romans? Just one day this week. Read through Romans. It's 16 chapters long. I don't think it would take you a great deal of time. But I'm just asking you, read through the book of Romans. Next week I'm going to say, would you take one day this week to read through the book of Romans? And if you start to get that there's a pattern coming, you're right. I would like to convince you to read through the book of Romans every single week while we're studying. All right? Every single week while we're studying. Just read through the book one time during that week. One time. If it stops at verse 16 every single time and you have to look again, hear the words. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. May this study warm your heart. Encourage you. If you struggle with these things, may the Lord give you that peace that you've been seeking. May you realize that you are secure in what He's doing. You can rest in this. And I think it will bring you to a point where you praise Him all the more. I know that's what it led me to do. Heavenly Father, You know every single heart in need in this room. You know where we stand on the whole issue of of uh, how secure our faith, our salvation is. And you know how weak we are, Lord, and how we do struggle so much. I thank you, Lord, as we started this service, I say it again, I thank you for your faithfulness. The work that you do is perfect, it's complete, and it has results that last forever. And that's what you're doing in our lives even now. Help us to understand it, Lord. To draw deeper and closer in our relationship with you, our knowledge of who you are and what you have done. To take away all those conceptions we've been taught over the years that it's up to us to bring ourselves to salvation. It's up to us to maintain our salvation. It's up to us to keep it and secure it when all the while it's been you who's done it all. Convince us of that through this passage, we pray. For we want to be those who praise you more and rest in your truth. So build us that kind of faith this, this year as we spend time in this book. We praise you, Lord, for who you are. Give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.